Hello, welcome to the show. This is the Magician and the Fool podcast, as you know. My name is Dominic. My co-host's name is Janice. We'll hear from him in a little bit. And we are on episode number 31. Today we speak with Vignana Nath, who is an American Natha yogi. Natha are a Shaiva sub-tradition within Hinduism, which combined ideas from Buddhism, Shaivism, and yoga traditions. Though his main focus these days are on his Natha practices, he has a background in Hermeticism, Esoteric Christianity, folk magic, and witchcraft, and he still enjoys learning about the world's many rich spiritual and occult traditions. He is a blogger and a professional astrologer at inpeaceprofound.com and has authored the pamphlet Tantric Conjure, which is available from Hadean Press. Vignana gives us an inside look at tantric practice as we attempt to define and examine the nature of Shakti, Shiva, Ganapati, Vishnu, and more, as well as the relationship and dynamic between all of those forces. It was a very insightful and enjoyable conversation, and we think you will agree. I'm going to keep this intro short so we can get right into the conversation, but first, as always, I'd like to thank our Patreon supporters. You guys are honestly amazing, and it's very humbling to have your support. We will do our best to maintain and improve the level of quality of the show as we move into the future. If you would like to support what we do, feel free to go to Patreon and look us up and donate what you can. It definitely helps cover all the overhead costs, which do add up. Uh, If you like the show and have a minute, feel free to give us a rating and a review on iTunes. It helps to boost the signal and the visibility of our guests, which helps them reach a bigger audience. We dedicate this episode to Hermes and Asclepius, and may any merits we accumulate doing this work be extended to all beings so that they, together with us, may equally realize awakening. Okay, we are here with Vignana Nath. We're extremely happy to have you here today on the show. Um, We're excited about how this conversation is going to go. I think we're going to cover some territory that we haven't covered yet. Um, So thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. Happy to to have a conversation with you guys. Yes, great. Great to have you. And unfortunately, Barry White is not here with us today, but we have Janice back, which we're excited about. Well, I'll do my best to approximate. Not quite as sexy, but I'm sure we'll get there. <laughs> so let's let's start at the beginning. Let's get the origin story. How did you get into this uh, this type of work? Um, by this type of work, I imagine you mean like yoga and tantra, yeah. that sort yeah. of thing. Yeah. Um, 
So I have kind of the, the normal like guy who grew up in the 90s in the U.S. origin story, broadly speaking. Uh, you know, I first encountered Wicca and neo-paganism because that's the stuff that was most available, most in the public eye. But it quickly became clear to me as soon as I started encountering Hermeticism and the Greco-Egyptian magical papyri, things like that when I was a teenager, that um, that stuff was a bit more of a closer fit for me. So I, I pursued that sort of thing. And years and years roll on here. So I'll just kind of skip to my my mid to late 20s at this point, where exploring uh, Hermeticism brought me to the writings of Muni Sadu, who's a Polish-born Roman Catholic Hermeticist, who himself became, and I, I can't remember his birth name or his Christian name, but he wrote under the Sanskrit name Muni Sadhu, um, you know, which is like the silent holy man kind of. But he himself in adulthood became a disciple of Ramana Maharishi, uh, who was a, you know, at the time a little known Indian guru um, very obscure figure at the time who lived in a small town in Tamil Nadu, um, or rather lived outside of a small town in Tamil Nadu. He like settled on Arunachala, the holy hill there. Anyway, from, uh, you know, so I got into Muni Sadhu's stuff, which led me into learning about Ramana Maharishi, who's a much bigger, more influential figure now that he's dead than he ever was when he was alive uh, because of the writings of Muni Sadhu and Paul Brunton and even some of the like perennialist and traditionalists like Fritjof Schuon mentioned him a few times, things like that. And Ram, Ramana Maharishi was not a tantric per se, but he was very much a Shaiva. Um, like he was raised in a sort of a non-religious or only sort of religious Shaiva family, but that was the closest thing to a religious background he had. And he ran off to Arunachala, which is a hill that is considered to be a physical manifestation of Shiva as a big stone lingam in Tamil Nadu. And so Shaivism was pervasive for him. So I just started very naturally feeling a pull toward Shiva. And I found myself spontaneously writing devotional poems to Shiva, things like that, um, before I had even really made any sort of formal study into Hinduism. Like Ramana Maharishi was all I knew at that point. Uh, and so it, it just became more and more clear to me that this was the, the direction they needed to go. Um, I just felt more and more at home with Shiva and with sort of the Shaivite pantheon, so to speak. And I, I looked into a few different groups and lineages and, and without getting into a lot of the painful specifics there, um, I eventually 
was just sort of surreptitiously pointed to uh, the international Noth order, which is a Noth lineage that moved west uh, out of India and um, just felt very much at home there once I started communicating with them. It's sort of hit the balance point that I really needed between very traditional approach to practice and a respect for the, uh, you know, the Indian source material while also being very, very open to adapting to different times and places. Did they, did they actually have a chapter where you were? No, uh, I was in here in Pittsburgh where I currently am at the time. And this was, I don't even recall how many years ago now, you know, half a decade, half dozen years, something like that. But no, they don't have anyone here. I, I think I'm currently the furthest east initiate. Uh, most of them are on the West Coast, um, in Seattle, a lot of them in Seattle, actually, or in New Mexico. There are, there are uh, a couple in, in the, I think, the Santa Fe area, if I'm getting that correct. But, um, but yeah, the, the guru is actually in... He relocated to uh, the jungle of Costa Rica some years ago, basically to better be a hermit in his later years. So, how hard was it for you to to uh, learn this style and learn this system, being that you didn't have that kind of community and that direct student-teacher relationship? Sort of everyone gets a mentor, um, you know. The, the guru made it really, really clear to me early on that he was available to me if I needed anything from him. Um, but also, I worked with a mentor, you know, sort of uh, a more senior knot in the lineage. Um, and so I, I, I was able to get my questions answered pretty reliably, although the Natha mode of practice is so experiential. It's so based on, okay, like we gave you a technique, go do it and get back to us once you've done it for a while. Um, but you're kind of on your own for a little bit, you know, trying to figure out how this actually fits in for you personally, because it's going to be different for everyone. So there's just that sort of back and forth balancing act of, okay, I did the thing for a while and here are some results. And then the mentor will say, okay, well, those results actually tell me something about you and how you're integrating the practices. So we can either tweak things where you're at or move on to the next thing. It was very hard at times, but it's intentionally very hard, you know, um, it's not meant to be an easy process. It's not a pay-to-play thing like the Golden Dawn or the OTO where they feed you this stuff on a particular schedule and you, you know, as long as you're paying your dues, you're in the door, you know. It's, you know, it is 100% about the work they give you to do and then you actually doing that work. So, yeah, it's it's very, very difficult at times. Um, but 
from what people who are closer to their mentors tell me, it's no easier that way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's good that you did have access to a mentor. That's good. Yeah. So we touched on the Shiva Yogi aspect, but I know well that you are also an accomplished um, conjurer. You're a conjure magician. You have experience with uh, Western ceremonial magic as well. And you also have a background in witchcraft. And I feel like it would be negligent of us to pass over that because it's a big part of your background. Mm -hmm. And I think it makes you a pretty formidable practitioner. Yeah, I do have background with all that stuff, uh, and it's still relevant. You know, it's it's easy when talking about yoga and tantra to to kind of gloss over all the other stuff that I, I went through. I, I have background with, you know, British traditional witchcraft, Alexandrian especially, um, but more notably, you know, I guess just folk magic practices writ large. Um, you know, I, I have, uh, you know, a, a great uncle who was a high ranking Freemason and I'm not a Freemason myself, but that was kind of a big deal for him. And he didn't talk about it with anyone. You know, a lot of the rest of the family just had no clue what he was up to. But after he died, I was the only person who wanted his books and things like that. No one else in the family knew what a lot of them were or what to do with them. But like his his Bible had little notes all through it on how he would use certain verses, um, you know, and he was definitely not like a hoodoo practitioner or anything like that. But it's interesting how similar that sort of thing, the way he used his Bible was to what a lot of hoodoo practitioners would do, what a lot of um, like Pennsylvania Dutch you know, like Brahari people would do. So I definitely have experience with a good bit of that. I have his Bible. I, I use it for like Psalm magic and things like that here and there. Sarah, the ceremonial magic stuff. Uh, yeah. I, I had my time with demonic evocation and all that sort of thing. And I, I have a lot of friends who are still very into that. So I definitely still have respect for that sort of practice. If that's what a person is sort of called to do. Uh, but for me, it's just not, not what I'm interested in anymore. You know, I was young at the time, so I screwed a lot of things up. I, I figured, you know, well, I'm smart enough to not have to do, deal with any of this protocol stuff that these medieval magicians did, right? Like I'm this smart modern guy. I don't need any of that. That's all superstition. So I caused myself a lot of trouble with that in my early twenties. Um, and that's not why I don't do it anymore. I, I obviously have learned that there's a right way to do it. Um, and I encourage anyone who's interested in that sort of thing to do it the right way. Like take the book seriously. Um, if you're going to try this stuff out, um, these, these old magicians, like they wrote down the stuff that worked. Uh, so take that seriously. But, um, yeah, I mean, it all informed where I'm at to one extent or another, even if I don't do much of it anymore on a regular basis. 
like it taught me respect for a lot of different ways of doing things. Well, and I think you bring something uh, fresh to the table, innovative and interesting with how you are mixing maybe Tantra and Conjure. And you put out a, a booklet recently through Hadean Press called Tantric Conjure, which I'd like to talk a little bit more about sure. uh, maybe a little later. But uh, I, I like where you, the synthesis of the tantric yogic side of things, but coming at uh, the techniques from more of maybe a, a conjure perspective, they seem to work very nicely together from what I've seen in your booklet. I, I really like uh, this perspective that you're showing people. Yeah, I appreciate that. It's, you know, it's, it's maybe less innovative than it might appear just because, you know, a lot of Indian people I've spoken with or people who learned at the, the feet of Indian practitioners, um, they practice in a way that resembles this. And if you look at, if you look at some of the quote unquote lower tantras, um, you know, or the, the like darker quote unquote Shakta tantras, um, they look a hell of a lot like somewhere between a grimoire and a conjure pamphlet. You know, you'll, you'll have everything from, you know, on this day, on, on like the day and hour of X, Y, or Z planet, inscribe this yantra, you know, this, this particular uh, geometric figure onto a plate of copper or steel or gold and perform puja to it, you know, offer flowers and fruit and water and incense and, uh, you know, chant this mantra and then state, you know, make a petition of whatever it is you need, um, which the, the greater key of Solomon is just like that. And, you know, a lot of the way conjure doctors work is just like that, you know, burn some incense, throw some, you know, throw some appropriate herbs onto your working surface and make a petition, you know, pray this Bible verse X number of times and, and then tell God what you need or tell the saints what you need or, or whatever as, as appropriate. But it's remarkable to me how similar a lot of these core practices are across incredibly broad uh, swaths of the world's cultures. And specific forms change, specific words change, the geometric shapes that you draw change, but the basic approach to using them is remarkably similar. Yeah, exactly. I agree. It is fascinating. So um, if you don't mind, maybe we could step back and cover some, uh, some definitions. Mm -hmm. Would you mind defining, maybe let's start with Tantra, Yantra, Mantra? Yeah, immediately getting into deep waters because uh, these words, I mean, a lot of languages have this, obviously, where one word can mean a host of different things in different contexts, but with Sanskrit, when you're dealing with philosophical and religious terminology, it gets really hard to even translate them, let alone define them, just because even within the same context, a word can carry like four or five different meanings, and it's, you're, you're kind of supposed to understand all those meanings as 
simultaneous and interwoven, but I'll do my best with the way I intend them broadly. So I'll kind of work backwards from the order you gave. So like Yantra is, um, the word can translate as machine or device. And it's usually used to refer to sort of a talismanic figure, a geometric shape or a drawing. Sometimes it can even be a bunch of mantras written down in a particular form. And just like with talismans and amulets in in any other system, they're they're designed to have particular effects. Um, And they're called machines because once you activate them, they just kind of keep going doing their thing. And also much like any other machine, uh, they channel force in a particular way, in a particular direction, according to what the user needs. So one of my most often used yantras is actually in that pamphlet. It's uh, a yantra of the deity Ganapati, often also called Ganesha or Vinayaka. That yantra is a really geometrically simple one, six-pointed star inside a circle or sometimes inside sort of a square fortress-looking thing um, with a triangle inside of the, the star and a dot in the center of the triangle. And you can go through the esoteric and occult significance of each of these elements, but what it really comes down to is Ganapati manifests through this conglomeration of shapes. Even if they're not perfect, and God knows my handmade one is not perfect, but Ganapati's Shakti, his force, um, manifests through this shape. And once you have gained Siddhi of that Yantra, once you've gained the, the accomplishment of its use, that Yantra is empowered by Ganapati himself. And you treat that Yantra from then on as Ganapati, like he is there in that Yantra. And so, you know, whenever you need something that Ganapati famously provides, road opening, clearing obstacles, um, you know, general blessings, uh, money, influence, communication, um, smoothing over social relationships, all of these kinds of things. Things in general, broadly speaking, that we would associate with either Mercury or Jupiter in a lot of cases, that yantra is applicable. And I can just set that yantra up and use, make use of that physical yantra in any number of ways to accomplish that task. Uh, again, a lot like the pentacles from the Key of Solomon. Once a pentacle is properly consecrated in the day and hour of whatever, at any time thereafter, you can set that pentacle up and burn some incense and make a petition to it that is relevant to what that pentacle does, you know? So... Kind of similar to that for people who are familiar with that Western form of practice. Um, Mantras are kind of similar to words of power or barbarous words or or things like that, but are also kind of similar to Bible verses in the sense that they're used with a 
you know, a certain symbolic number of repetitions very often. Um, and much like yantras, repetition of them, concentration on them, and contemplation of them attains siddhi of a mantra, attains accomplishment of it, where you can sink yourself into that mantra and touch the essence of it. And again, just like with yantras, mantras are manifestations of the corresponding deity. So, you know, a yantra is said to be the body of that deity in sonic form. So, a Ganapati Yantra, to keep going with that example, is Ganapati as a sound. Uh, so whenever I chant that mantra, I do so with, you know, with the same dignity and respect with which I would treat an image of that deity. Once a mantra, once you have gained contact with a mantra to some extent, that mantra can be used in a number of magical ways, you know, to empower prayers and petitions, uh, to charge talismanic objects or charms to, to give to someone else for their benefit, um, things like that. But also is used in yoga. You know, a yantra can be too. You can meditate on a yantra. You can meditate on a mantra uh, and achieve various yogic states of consciousness with it, uh, according to the nature of the deity. Tantra is the big boy. Um, that's a really hard one to describe or define. In my own lineage, we tend to go real full bore with it. The broadest possible definition, you know, Tantra is freedom. But implied in there are a set of techniques, the word Tantra can be translated to English as technique or method or even science. You find in modern Sanskrit usage, the word Tantra can straight up refer to modern science. It can straight up refer to physics or chemistry. But obviously the way we use it, we mean a different kind of science, sort of a science of consciousness, the science of subjective experience and how to explore those subjective experiences and integrate them more fully. And that's how freedom is attained. That's how a person becomes more free by understanding their own mind, their own emotions, their own experiences as deeply as possible, integrating them as deeply as possible and responding rather than reacting. So being able to consciously say, okay, I'm in this situation, this stimulus has occurred, I'm going to respond in this way because it seems like the most productive way to, expo uh, to respond, as opposed to I'm reacting, I'm knee-jerking, and I'm going to have to deal with those repercussions later. Um, so very broadly, that's kind of what Tantra is. Um, spells and rituals and meditations and physical movements and all of these things that help us to achieve those states of consciousness wherein we are as fully aware as we can be and can um, consciously and, and deliberately engage with, with our own experience and existence. Very nicely put. Having said that, do you feel that there are some major misconceptions that people have about Tantra, of course, yoga, 
Um, would you mind if, if there are such misconceptions, feel free to uh, address them now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what I just said about Tantra may make it sound totally free form. And so you get a lot of quote unquote neo Tantra, which treats it as this totally free form thing where, where you can just do whatever, whenever and call it Tantra. And it, this, this gets into paradox territory, um, as a lot of this stuff does, as you guys are obviously really well aware with your knowledge of like tantric forms of Buddhism and things like that, you get into really similar dilemmas of trying to describe this stuff. Because yeah, there is a level at which it is extremely free form where it's, it's just a total flow kind of situation, but you don't get to start there. You know, my, my mentors started out by giving me mantras to practice with one by one and building upon them as I went and using them in a specific sequence, in a specific order and building a ritual around that sequence of mantras and, and you know, without, without giving away a bunch of details, it's as intensive and complex a thing as as you would find anywhere else you know and it's only once a person has really fully integrated these formal practices that they can start going off in whatever directions they want and seeing how these things unfold in an organic way so i i think people get caught up in that term that i used earlier freedom they get caught up in a super, uh, a super like modern kind of Americanized understanding of what that word means. It doesn't mean do whatever you want at any given moment. It doesn't mean follow every whim. You know, it 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 means you know it means determining what your actual intention is, and learning how to leave aside everything that doesn't move you toward that intention and using every tool you have at your disposal that does move you in that direction. You know, freedom is a way of understanding how you can engage with, with your own experiences. Uh, and it requires a lot of formal practice before you get to that point. And I'm not saying I'm at that point. You get glimpses of it here and there. You have moments where everything unfolds you know, and, and you, you see beyond the horizon and you have this incredible freedom of action, but then it'll close back in at some point and you have to, you come back down to earth and you have to like, you have to examine that situation too and think of, okay, well, how do I try to extend that freedom into doing the laundry and, and like dusting my bookshelves? Um, so there's, there's that. Uh, and the obvious one, of course, is sex, right? Like everyone hears Tantra and thinks, you know, oh, that's, that's crazy sex stuff. That's sting, you know, going for three hours without an orgasm. And sex is part of Tantra. But the problem is everything is part of Tantra. That's the nature of Tantra. Nothing, no part of life gets left out. But sex is such a big psychological and cultural force for humanity 
whatever culture you're in, it's a big psychological and cultural force for you. So obviously stuff like that is going to get attention. That's going to, that's going to be the headline, even though on the, you know, in the grand scheme, it's a really small portion of Tantra. Tantra is not all about, you know, having these long nights of burying your, your consciousness in physical pleasure. It's instead about taking all of those experiences, what it means to be a living human and folding them into your spirituality, folding them into your exploration of your own consciousness and your own awareness. So people who get caught up in the sex thing are, they're not, wrong for thinking it's there, but they are wrong for thinking it's the whole thing. They're, they're wrong for thinking it's in any way a focus. It's just, everything's a tool. Everything's part of it. Nice. And what you said about freedom earlier, uh, immediately my mind went, it reminded me of the martial arts world as well. I mean, people that practice new, new people to the martial arts, they want that freedom of movement to do all the badass stuff. But uh, really, the freedom comes from the forms, and you, you can't have the freedom without yeah. the forms. Um, so it is a little bit of a paradox in that way, um, but it, that relates to really everything. Yeah, uh, bringing up martial arts is interesting because I, I've been practicing Tai Chi, um, martial Tai Chi, like the kind that eventually you can use for fighting, uh, as opposed to like retirement center Tai Chi. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that either, you know, remaining supple and flexible into your later years is, is an awesome thing unto itself. But, um, you know, my, my girlfriend and I both are practicing with the same instructor and it's funny, like he will watch our movements and watch our posture and all of that and, and tell us like, oh yeah, this is his phrase. Like, I'm going to make you guys into monsters but, you know, like starting out, it's like, okay, you're going to stand in this spot with your legs in a certain position, with your hands up in front of you, like you're hugging an invisible person and you're just going to stand there for 40 minutes and not move and just breathe. And you're going to feel every muscle in your body loathing you throughout this entire process. And it doesn't feel like that's getting you any closer to being able to like move around and block punches and restrain someone's limbs. But, you know, when you do it for a while, you develop this new relationship, pardon me, you develop this new relationship with your body, with your limbs, with your back, with your hips um, that you didn't have before. And as you pointed out, it's very, very similar where when I sit in meditation, sometimes it's torture. Sometimes I'm just sitting there for 40 minutes and my, my mind is throwing everything at me to make me feel as bad as possible. Uh, and that's just part of it. That's part of digging into the experience and, and, developing a new relationship with my own mental processes. And that's how freedom happens. Um, that's how things open up. So yeah, that's a really solid analogy. So 
it seems like in in India there are definitely some tantric magicians who do also do things that at least from a distance seem to have some similarity to um, root work, folk magic, things like that, even working with uh, spirits of the dead sometimes. And I think that yeah. there's an interesting overlap there. And I'm wondering if any of that has informed your personal conjure practice. Hugely. Um, I mean, I, I would say my conjure practice at this point is almost entirely tantric. Um, you know, I, I, I mentioned earlier, I still do occasionally use Bible verses and things like that um, to do some like candle work uh, and, and so forth. But that's really, really rare at this point. And, and usually that's, I mostly do that when I'm working for friends and clients who feel more comfortable with that sort of thing. Cause I, I take, not to sound too like airy fairy or new agey here, but I take a kind of universalist approach to this stuff where any rigorous approach to divinity has validity to it. If it takes a Christian form or it takes a Jewish form or it takes, uh, you know, a, a, a like Lakota form, you know, like it doesn't, as long as it is getting results, as long as it is getting you to the divinity you're trying to approach, I have respect for it. And so having background with both mainstream and esoteric Christianity myself, I'm totally comfortable practicing in those forms if that connects better with someone I'm doing work for. You know, but but whenever I'm doing work for myself, for a lot of my clients, for my household, for my girlfriend, for a lot of my friends, um, I work with purely, you know, quote unquote Hindu forms. I use um, mantras and yantras and uh, corresponding incenses and and. Um, all these sorts of things, you know, out of the tantric playbook, so to speak. But yeah, if you were watching me do it without any audio, you might not be able to tell immediately, you know, what language I'm speaking. You know, you might not be able to tell immediately what the sort of religious context is. Um, they, they, again, they do look remarkably similar but they all inform each other in the end. You know, I can take a technique I learned from one and port it over to the other and it works great. Like candle magic, candle magic is not native to Tantra, you know, using lights is using oil lamps with different types of oil for symbolic purposes to connect with different deities or types of spirits. That's pretty normal. Um, but using paraffin wax candles isn't that's, you know, that's uh, an innovation that I poured it over and it works great. Now, let me ask you this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, yes, Mari, go ahead. Now, um, do you, I want to ask you your opinion as a practitioner. Do you think that there is a difference in the way that effects play out 
um, between using a candle and using a lamp, like a ghee lamp or an oil lamp, yeah. you know, because there, there's a different, you're using different substances. There's a different rate of burning. Um, I'm just wondering, really, in your opinion, is there a difference in um, the way the magic plays out or the way the work ends up unfolding? Yeah, um, that's a great question. And the answer is yes. Um, I haven't found the difference in most cases to be big enough to stop me from doing one or the other uh, as, you know, as makes more practical sense at the time. But there definitely is a difference. So, for example, in, I'm pretty sure, I, I actually don't have a physical copy of it in front of me to check, but I'm pretty sure in Tantric Conjure, I mentioned using um, earthen, like clay or ceramic lamps filled with mustard oil um, and then of course a wick soaked in that mustard oil uh, burning those when working with Bhairava um, especially when working with him at a crossroads or in a cemetery and that has an appreciably different and frankly far better more desirable effect than if I were just to burn a wax candle under the same circumstances. You can use the wax candle if you need to, and you can even dress it with mustard oil. If you have mustard oil, but don't have a wick, don't have a lamp, things like that will work. You can make these on the fly substitutions. And a lot of traditionalists will tell you that like, nope, will not work, but I can attest that it, it, it does. But you will feel a difference, especially when you do this stuff over a long period of time. It's just true that certain spirits prefer certain substances. And maybe try not to make these substitutions until you've built up some of these relationships solidly. But yeah, I mean, if I'm working with a lighter entity like Ganapati as the bringer of riches, the bringer of sweetness in life, uh, a ghee lamp is going to be preferable to a candle because the ghee lamp will burn cleaner. The ghee lamp will burn brighter. Um, you know, less smoke. You get that lovely aroma from the ghee, that buttery scent that fills the room in a very subtle but noticeable way. Whereas if you burn just a plain white taper candle, you're going to get, you're going to get, more acrid smoke, maybe not a ton of it if you buy good candles, but it's going to smell different in the room. Um, you know, the, the wax itself very often will have, um, you know, at least some uh, petroleum product in it as a bulker um, or to make it burn more smoothly, more evenly. Um, that's going to have an impact. Ganapati is an interesting case because he is extremely responsive and extremely friendly. So he'll probably show up no matter what you're burning, um, as long as it's not specifically offensive to him. You know, like if you take a candle and carve like screw Ganapati in it, you're going to get a different result. But uh, if you just burn a plain, clean candle, he'll probably still show up. But you will notice a difference in the atmosphere when he shows up. He'll bring different portions of his retinue of spirits, depending on what you burn, depending on what incense you offer. I have 
almost entirely switched over to Japanese incense because whatever it's made out of, it just tends to burn so much more cleanly than any other incense. There's no wooden stick through the middle to give you this like heavy wood smoke as part of it. Um, and it burns all the way, completely gone. Uh, there's no stick at the end of it. So things like that absolutely make a difference. If I'm working with a heavier entity, I'll use like a real thick nag champa or something like that. But a Japanese aloes wood is great for, for daily meditation practice and for regular puja, um, for my regular offerings. So things like that do, do make a difference. Um, so, yeah, I hope that answers the question. I rambled a little. Yeah, it does. Thank you. That's definitely very informative. Yeah, I would I would agree about that uh, Japanese incense. <clears throat> you don't have that heavy wood smell, and it does make a difference, uh, in my opinion. So we definitely need to talk about uh, Shiva, but you you mentioned Shakti earlier, and that's a, an important term, an important force, an important uh, goddess that we should probably address as well. So um, would you mind talking to our listeners about Shakti uh, for those who aren't familiar? Yeah. Um, again, kind of kind of deep waters, uh, and you need to pick and choose a little bit when you're when you're talking on a topic that broad. But uh, you know, as probably a lot of people who have read anything into yoga or tantra philosophy are aware, um, the word shakti means force. Sometimes translated as strength or energy. All of those work, and Again, if you're just using conversational Sanskrit, you would use the word shakti to refer to any force, any, you know, um, any force you apply in any situation. So you could talk about like kinetic shakti, you know, or potential shakti and so forth. And I think getting into these literal conversational uses of words in Sanskrit is actually super, super helpful in understanding their more like philosophical applications. So Shakti, kind of with a capital S, if you will, is um, recognized in in a lot of forms of Tantra, specifically Shakta Tantra, Tantra that focuses on Shakti, as the absolute unto herself. She is, you know, she is consciousness. She is the movement of consciousness. She is energy and matter and the movement thereof, um, you know, everything manifest and unmanifest alike. Uh, I know that sounds so broad as to be almost useless for defining a term. Um, but you go from there to realize that every male deity has a Shakti, has a corresponding goddess and that goddess is inseparable from that god you cannot think of one without the other you can't speak of one without the other so when i talk about shiva i'm talking about shiva and shakti simultaneously as a unit likewise if i talk about vishnu narayana i'm talking about vishnu and lakshmi when you talk about Krishna's Shakti, 
you usually hear people say Radha Krishna. They mention her first. They mention Radha first. Um, because it's through Shakti. You know, so with, with Shiva and Shakti, it's, it's often said that Shiva is um, the absolute consciousness, the absolute unmanifest, unmoving, still point of consciousness. Shakti is consciousness in motion, consciousness manifest, and consciousness manifesting everything else. Um, so you can't come to Shiva without going through Shakti. Um, you have to experience Shakti in order to experience Shiva. And the same is true of all of these God forms. You know, you, you, you experience Vishnu by experiencing Lakshmi. Lakshmi is the goddess of both spiritual and material prosperity. She brings the good things in life. And it's through the good things in life that we experience Vishnu, who is God manifest as everything in the universe. So to experience divinity in the universe, in all of this stuff, you have to first experience the sweetest, most exalted portions of that stuff. And then from there, you kind of naturally trace back to the more absolute, uh, the more absolute prospect that's inherent there. And so when we talk about Shiva and Shakti, we're kind of saying something similar. Um, to experience absolute consciousness, we have to experience every aspect of relative consciousness uh, as it presents itself. Um, and so when I talk about Shakti, that's one of the major senses in which I am using that word and in which I'm referring to that being. Um, you know, I, I, I also very often casually refer to her as Ma, you know, as, as the mother, as my mother, as my mom. And when I speak to her that way, even when I speak about her that way, when I just picture her that way, I find my, my mind, my awareness moving in the direction of the absolute. You know, uh, I find my awareness expanding, taking in more of what's going on around me and seeing more and more of the connections between the different phenomena in front of me. And I think that's a good way of looking at Shakti, you know, whatever, like the more you understand Shakti, the more you relate to Shakti, the more everything seems to function as a very internally diverse unit. Beautiful. So can we add Ganapati, Ganesh, to this equation, how does that work then? What's the dynamic there? So Ganapati is, uh, Shiva and Shakti are usually portrayed as having 
two children. Um, and the two children together represent all of manifest reality. Um, and each one of the children, they, they, they weren't born from the union of Shiva and Shakti. Shiva and Shakti's union is um, a tantric union that uh, purely produces the highest possible states of consciousness. So they don't produce children through sexual union the way a lot of other deity couples are portrayed. Instead, Shiva produced Kartikeya, otherwise known as Murugan or Skanda. Um, he's got a few other significant names. Um, but Shiva produced him, produced Murugan directly. Whereas Shakti, in the form of the goddess Parvati, produced Ganapati directly from herself. Um, the story is, and I'll, I'll keep it brief, but the, the myth is very instructive. Um, Shiva, as he is wont to do, went out into the woods with his retinue of ghosts and goblins and ghouls to wander around and just screw off in the wilderness for a while. And Parvati decided she wanted to take a bath while he was away, take a nice, long, relaxing bath. But she didn't want some random god or spirit or yogi or sage walking in on her while she was bathing. So she uh, oiled herself up, which is a traditional method of bathing in India. Uh, you cover yourself in a particular vegetable oil, uh, often according to your Ayurvedic needs. And you use a scraper, often made of wood or bamboo, um, sometimes a very blunt metal. And you use that scraper to scrape the top layers of your skin off with that oil and all of the dirt and filth and grime on you gets captured in the oil and all of the dead skin comes off along with it. And then you go soak in the bath um, to let your pores open up and, and so forth. Um, so she did that. She covered herself in the oil and she, she scraped herself down and all the scurf, that dead skin and oil that came off of her she formed into a fat little toddler uh, and she animated him and there's Ganapati um, pre-elephant head. Um, but there's Vinayaka, the, you know, the cute little fat bellied guy. And she told him, Hey, you're my son. Why don't you go outside and guard the gate so that no one can come in while I'm bathing? And, you know, he happily, he happily, you know, went off to do so, went to guard the gate. And uh, after a while, Shiva comes wandering back all, you know, all high on hash hashish uh, and happy from his journey. And he wants to get back in to see Parvati and probably do a little bit more than seeing her. And uh, there's this little fat dude who won't let him through. Um, 
And so Shiva thinks this is amusing and is like, okay, that's cute, but let me in to see my wife. And Ganapati uh, just says, well, Vinayaka at this point, he's not Ganapati yet. Um, he goes, no, sorry, I have very specific orders not to let anyone in to see my mother. And Shiva gets kind of confused. Like, what, what do you mean your mother? Um, we don't have any kids, you know, this, like what this, this is, this is ridiculous. He starts getting angry at this point and he takes his trident and uses the blade edge and lops this little toddler's head off so that he can get in to see his wife. Well, Parvati hears all this commotion and she wraps a towel around herself and she walks out and says, what's going on and sees Vinayaka beheaded laying on the ground dead. And she is devastated. And in classic Shakti form, she doesn't just get sad. She gets angry. She gets so angry that the universe starts to unravel. And she says, you have to make this right. And Shiva immediately, yes, ma'am and runs back out into the woods and decides the first head I come across, I'm going to bring back and put it on this body and bring this guy back to life so that Parvati doesn't go full Kali and destroy the universe. He finds a mother elephant mourning her own dead child. And he walks up and he says, I think I can fix both of our problems here. I'm going to take your baby's head and I'm going to affix it to this other body and I'm going to bring them back as a composite being. How's that sound? The mother elephant is like, yeah, great. So he takes the head of this dead baby elephant and brings it back, puts it on Vinayaka's body and resurrects him and gives him the title Ganapati or Ganesha, the Lord of Ganas, Lord of Spirits, Lord of the Host of Spirits, and makes Ganapati the head of Shiva's own retinue of ghosts, goblins, fairies, elementals, you know, that whole broad class of, of beings. For his bravery, for not having backed down, for following Parvati's orders. Um, that sounds like a good party. <laughs> um, well, the the nice part is we're all there. Um, you know, we are all Shiva coming home, trying to find our way back to Shakti at that point. You know, Shiva wandering through the wilderness is the individual soul getting lost in the world. Um and the way we have to come back through is through Ganapati. Um, not only does he rule this class of spirits, he contains the entire manifest universe in his belly. That's what the symbol of the big round belly is. Everything manifest is there. All of Maya is inside of him. Shakti's skin, you know, the scurf of Shakti's skin is, is nothing other than Maya, nothing other than the magic power of manifestation. 
Ganapati is made out of the raw stuff of manifestation. So he contains everything that's manifest. So all of the functions we ascribe to him, you know, opening of roads, uh, dispeller of obstacles, bringer of wisdom, bringer of communication, all of this stuff um, is just because Ganapati is all of manifestation. And also a, a uh, born of a virgin and, and there's definitely kind of a resurrection story happening here, obviously. Uh, yeah, a little bit of that going on there. Too. I wanted to quickly mention, um, it's also interesting. Yeah, Dom, that's a good point about the parthenogenesis. But also it's interesting because isn't um, Ganapati or Ganesh, he's also like lord of magic and, you know, magic and Maya. Um, at least in the in the Hindu sense, seem to be pretty closely interrelated. And yeah, if he comes from essentially the skin of Maya esoterically, that would really rep that could represent that he really he really represents the um, emergence or the phenomenal manifestation of Shakti in in the in the external world. Would you say that's right or close to right or wrong or? Yeah, that's that's a a really good observation. It's it's interesting to look at because this is all coming from a non-dual perspective, right? And in a non-dual perspective, all of these things overlap as different phases of the same events, the same phenomena. So when you bring up Ganapati as the kind of outward layer of Shakti, you're basically saying kind of the same thing that myth is in more direct philosophical or or metaphysical language, where Ganapati is Shakti enacting the manifest universe, including all of us, obviously, because we're all part of that. We're all upwellings of that. So these are all different layers of the same process of self-revelation. That's pretty intriguing. Um, it also it also would explain his fundamental um, role, really, not only in the Shaiva pantheon but in the general Hindu pantheon of that classic archetypal principle you see around the world, where you have this deity that represents the connectivity, the connection to the immaterial realm. And that deity is connected with the highest deities all the way down to the spirit realm. It's interesting you bring up the spirit realm to uh, the spirit realm there as well, because Ganapati being the Lord of Ganas, one of the reasons that often goes unstated for invoking Ganapati before undertaking any other task or before um, starting a puja to another deity uh, is just the fact that he also gets local spirits on side. So when we talk about him removing obstacles, he does that at every level. He helps us to remove our own internal obstacles, get into the right mindset of whatever it is we're trying to do, but he also gets all of these local spirits, nature spirits, elementals, fairies, 
ghosts, whatever happens to be lingering around to either join in and be of help or just to stand out of the way. And so whatever offerings you give to Ganapati, he will split up, you know, he will divvy out to the local nature spirits to keep them friendly with the practitioner. That's definitely pretty interesting. Um, it seems as though even locally he forms this connecting link where he doesn't just connect you to the upper network of beings, but he also links you to the localized network. So there's this sort of quality of energy distribution I feel like you're discussing. Very much. That's a good way to put it. And that brings us back to Shakti, right? Uh, we're talking about energy distribution. Well, Shakti is energy. She is this um, abstract force that has not yet taken a definitive form. Ganapati is, you know, through whom she takes on that definitive form. So when you, when you talk about that energy translation or energy transferal, you're again linking Ganapati straight back into his origins in Shakti. Uh, what I was going to say is it's really interesting because it seems as though both the son of Shiva and the son of Shakti, it's like they both have certain mercurial characteristics. They both sort of have this mercury function that plays out differently in their field of action, but they both seem to have these attributes that are very mercurial in nature. And I find that intriguing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that is also a really good observation. The, uh, the best way to put that relationship in my mind is to point out that Kartikeya is also related to the planet Mars. So, and Ganapati is related more to the planet Jupiter. And they kind of meet in the middle with that mercurial element. And this isn't an absolutely strict description because neither of them are strictly planetary deities, but just drawing in these different connections that they have so Ganapati spreads out. You know, he's got this horizontal kind of relationship, whereas Kartikeya has a more vertical relationship, and Kartikeya is described as the uh, lord or god or patron of yogis. So Kartikeya helps us get into the process of internal fire, which is so key to yoga practice. And fire, symbolically, of course, is always rising. It's always reaching upward from its point of origin. Uh, and Kartikeya's weapon is a spear, um, which he usually just holds with the, the butt end of it planted in the ground with the spear point upward like a, a single tongue of flame. So there very much is that connection that you draw but they emphasize different aspects of it. They facilitate different aspects of that mercurial function by marrying it with other influences. 
that's that's very interesting um because it also seems as though they both have this tantric aspect because you have ganesha ganapati very closely associated with tantra but then you have kartikeya marugan also associated with yoga especially this the fire mm -hmm. which you know isn't that fire also directly associated with kundalini which is a manifestation of shakti the fire is associated with kundalini but is not strictly identical to kundalini the fire is the energized and directed prana that the yogi moves through their system to burn away, break up, and transform obstacles to the free flow of energy in the body-mind system. Um, Kundalini, related to Shakti, Kundalini is another name for Durga, for Shakti in what's often portrayed as her more martial aspect where she's riding on a lion or a tiger. She often has six, eight, or six, eight, ten, or a thousand arms, each of which is grasping a different weapon. And she also wields the weapons of all of the other gods and devas. So she wields... Uh, Indra's net. She wields Vishnu's uh, chakram, his like bladed disc. She wields Shiva's trident, and so on and so forth. And, you know, she wields Murugan's spear. She wields all deities' powers, all of their active powers, for her own purposes. Um, she slays demons. She manifests Chamunda out of herself specifically to destroy and consume demons that cannot be destroyed in any other way. She is Kundalini Shakti. Kundalini just refers to Durga or Amba, as she's also known inside a container. Kundalini means inside a container or inside of a jar, inside of a vase, which is why she's often worshipped with a vase full of water, uh, usually copper or brass, to represent, to represent her relationship with individual beings. She is the soul, she is the Atman, she is the consciousness inside of every individual. And when we sort of use the um, function of Kartikeya to burn away and transform these obstacles, she takes over and begins to move freely throughout our systems. That's intriguing. Would you say that um, we could draw maybe a parallel with the anima mundi of Western esoteric philosophy? I suppose somewhat. I mean, insofar as they are 
both the intelligence and the motive force behind you know all all incarnate life and all earthly experience most certainly um one thing i have to say is like over the years knowing you doing my own studies um into the subject i cannot ignore the um parallels to the esoteric teachings of gnostics on sophia with what you know what you just put out there on um you know shakti dorga you know matara it's just it's um it's really intriguing that to me i mean i understand there are many systems of hindu esotericism or or uh you know and and even within shiva tantra it seems as though there's like several schools but it does seem to me to be the deepest and most esoteric the shiva the shiva uh tantra the the shaktism and shaivism seem to me to go deepest into the esoteric aspects of things kind of similar to i think um perhaps what the Gnostics actually were as opposed to what, you know, the polemics of the church fathers framed them to be. Um, one thing I want to ask you about is the, like the uh, Aghori practices, you know, the charnel ground meditations and the Kapalikas, the skull, the skull cup carriers and all that. Does your tradition connect to any of that or, or are you guys in like a different stream uh, in, What's the purpose of some of these extreme practices like meditating among rotting right. corpses and uh, eating, you know, eating dead flesh, eating shit? You know what I mean? Things like that. Natas are not agoris and vice versa, but there is sort of an interchange or an interplay between them. There there's a significant overlap in the way they look at things, uh, in the way they approach the world, the way they approach experience in the world. But there are significant differences in the way they approach their particular practices. Natas tend more toward strictly yoga practices and we certainly do have our tantric ritual practices to be sure different schools and lineages among the nathas place different amounts of emphasis here and there but i would say that nathas tend you know are, are leaning more toward um a yogic approach whereas agoris emphasize the ritual a great deal more. And we definitely have our fire rituals that we do with our sequences of mantras, putting offerings into the ritual fire, so on and so forth. But for Agoris, kind of everything is a ritual, which is where you get these things like cannibalism and, and meditating on corpses and there are nathas who do these things too. There are tantrikas of all sorts of schools who do the charnel ground meditations and, and the charnel ground worship and so forth. But Agoris definitely put a lot of emphasis on that. And part of it is, is nathas 
are trying, again, these are very broad statements and I don't mean them to be taken as absolutes, but again, very, very broadly speaking, Nathas are trying to, uh, Nathas are trying to transcend a sense of separation by first drawing divisions between nature and consciousness and things like that, entering more fully into the life of consciousness, entering more fully into the life of the, the spirit or the soul or whatever word you want to use there, the, the purusha, the atman, and viewing from there the way in which nature and consciousness or mind and matter or whatever words you feel like applying to this duality, you know, viewing from that high up place that there actually is no division in reality whatsoever. So you kind of use dualism to achieve non-dualism. Whereas Agoris um, prefer to go straight into the non-dualism by way of the most extreme examples of, of non-dual living that they can achieve. Uh, and so doing these things that most people would look at and say are disgusting is a way to do that. Agori literally translates as not disgusting. Nothing is disgusting. Nothing is repugnant. So agora is a yogic state in which a person realizes that nothing is inherently uh, evil. Nothing is inherently dirty. Nothing is inherently filthy or opposed to divinity. But that instead we experience things as filthy or evil uh, and so the Agori says, well, screw it. I'm just going to carve away any of these divisions right at the outset. Whereas Anatha says, well, I'm just going to look really deeply into these divisions and see what is actually inside of them. I would say that's the difference, but the ultimate goal is the same. The Agori seem like the ultimate embodiment of kind of a, a trickster paradigm. <laughs> yeah. They're just turning turning things on its head and and kind of living that yeah that's a good way to put it and yeah janice i also couldn't help but thinking about sophia when he was talking about shakti and and as well as maybe hecate uh, as the anima mundi from maybe a chaldean perspective so we're covering a lot of good ground here. Um, I would like to add Brahman and Vishnu to the party mm-hmm. before we finally do get to well, thank Shiva. God, yeah. <laughs> let's get them in here. Because they play some vital roles. They do. As well that I think need to be addressed. Yeah. The famous or infamous Trimurti, the triple form of Brahma, the creator, Vishnu, the preserver, and Shiva, or as a lot of Shaivas actually prefer to say, Rudra, the destroyer, because Rudra is one of the major aspects of Shiva, but it's important sort of at a, at a metaphysical level 
to make that distinction that Shiva is not limited to the destructive function. So a lot of Shaivas like to use the, the, the name Rudra in there specifically um, to say Rudra the destroyer, you know, Shiva in that particular form. And a lot of Shaivas, like especially if you look at South Indian Shaiva Siddhanta, for example, or North Indian Trika Shaivism, you know, Kashmiri Shaivism, they like to say very explicitly that Brahma and Vishnu are Shiva as the creator and the preserver or upholder. So they again emphasize this non-dual approach where, well, it's all the same consciousness manifesting through different faces and bodies. But it's really important to emphasize that this is not identical to what a lot of Western neo-pagans would call soft polytheism. Because Hindu polytheism makes really, really clear that we can approach and understand these different beings as separate individuals, and we are not wrong for doing so. You can talk to Vishnu as his own person, so to speak. Um, and that's valid to do so. But that at the ultimate level, all consciousnesses are one consciousness. So we say that Vishnu is an aspect of the absolute of Paramashiva, if you like, or Bhairava, in the same way that you and I are. So he still acts as an individual being. Brahma still acts as an individual being. The difference between us and them, the difference between, you know, Janus, Dham, and Vijnana, and Brahma, Vishnu, and Rudra is that they are fully aware that they are the absolute performing a specific function even while still having their individual conscious awareness and experience. Whereas the three of us here talking on this podcast are significantly less aware of that non-dual relationship. And that's the difference between us. And that's pretty much it. Um, I hope that that makes some sense, but that's sort of the role that Brahma and Vishnu play in a non-dual tantric perspective. And you will find some Vaishnava tantrikas who prefer to use Vishnu as the name or Narayana as the name of the absolute rather than Shiva. But their perspective is pretty much the same. Um, they're just using a different name to refer to the same thing and their practices are going to look a bit different. The words they're going to use are going to look a bit different, but they're doing pretty much the same thing and they have pretty much the same understanding. Interesting. So from a, a Shaivite perspective, we've been talking about Shiva this entire time without addressing him specifically. Yeah. Yeah. So focusing in on Shiva Let's talk about maybe the symbolism, uh, the snake, the trident, the river. Can you speak to, to, that, to those things? Just as with 
Buddhism, every murti, every image of a deity uh, can be read like a scripture in a sense. They are visual scriptures. So every visual element of one of these images, whether it's a painting or a statue, has some sort of both exoteric and esoteric, uh, to be real pretentious about it, significance. Uh, So the average temple worshiper can look at these images and look at the trident and see well, that's the thing Shiva uses to destroy demons. That's the thing Shiva uses to, you know, cleanse the world when things go too far in a particular direction. And they are correct in that understanding, just as much as a yogi or a tantrika will look at that trident and see that that is Shiva having dominance over the three main states of consciousness, waking, dreaming, and deep sleep. You know, we can also look at it and say that's Shiva having primacy over the three gunas of sattva, rajas, and tamas. Uh, You know, light, activity, and darkness or ignorance. So we, we can pick all of these elements of the image out and point to multiple layers of meaning to it that will have a different significance depending on the particular practice you're engaging in. So whenever I am doing magic for a material result, that trident is primacy over the gunas and therefore over the material elements that arise as evolutes of those three gunas interacting with one another. And so I will use my physical trident as a magical tool the same way a ceremonial magician would use a wand or a sword to um, focus different forces into a particular place and sort of command them to achieve a particular outcome for me. Whenever I'm meditating, however, that self-same trident on my altar standing upright on its base is for me my own spinal column with the three states of consciousness being at the top in my brain. And I am using that trident as an emblem of my own mastery over those three states of consciousness in the state, the fourth state of Samadhi. So different layers there. Uh, But you brought up also quite a number of others. Uh, The crescent moon in Shiva's dreadlocks. Shiva's dreadlocks themselves are identical to Indra's net, Indra's web, that represents the interlinking of all phenomena in the universe. The crescent moon in his hair also emphasizes his primacy over the different states of consciousness, the moon being the mind in the in a person's astrological chart. It, it tells you about the state of that person's mind. And so the moon being in Shiva's hair is uh, Shiva having absolute control over the mind. The river 
uh, Ganga, the, the Ganges, is supposed to fall out of heaven uh, and land on, be sort of cushioned by Shiva's hair so that the force of it doesn't tunnel straight through the earth and destroy it, uh, and then sort of bounce out of his hair and form the Ganges River. Well, obviously no one believes at this point that the Ganges River literally lands in some dude's hair up in the mountains. So what are we actually talking about there? The Ganges is the emblem of purity. So, you know, Shiva is the fount of purity uh, for the yogi and the worshiper alike. Uh, and through concentration on Shiva, through worship of Shiva, we bring ourselves to the position of that crescent moon where we purify our own minds and attain to a perfect equipoise and concentration. So, um, you know, all of these things wrap together in a way in the image of Shiva. And to quickly touch on the snake, which you brought up, Shiva wears Nagaraja, the ruler of all the Nagas, all the, the serpent spirits who live in uh, Patala, one of the underworlds. Uh, he wears Nagaraja as his holy cord. You know, uh, high caste Hindus, Orthodox Hindus, wear a consecrated cord around, you know, from shoulder to hip. And they hold it in a particular way and chant mantras with it every day. Shiva is Vedically unclean. <laughs> he, he is not, you know, he is uh, such that he is outcast in a way. So he doesn't wear a standard holy cord. And in fact, Ganapati is often portrayed wearing this serpent cord as well to emphasize his connection to Shiva in certain respects, uh, especially in very tantric respects. So Shiva wears Nagaraja, you know, one of his names is, is one of my favorite tongue twisters, Nagaraja Yagnopavitavate, uh, he who wears Nagaraja as the, the holy cord. And that connects him back again to uh, the, the force of yoga, the practice of yoga, where... You know, Kundalini famously is represented as a serpent. Um, and the meaning there isn't that she's actually this astral serpent inside of us. It's just that she takes the form of uh, these layers of force that can be very poetically represented as a coiled up serpent, specifically a serpent in three and a half coils that represent again the three gunas and the three states of consciousness with the remaining half coil being the capacity of the individual consciousness to transcend the gunas and the three states of consciousness. So that's again, tying Shiva back into the whole process of yoga. That's awesome. Thanks, man. 
Um, so what attracts you to Shiva over, say, Vishnu as as kind of a main deity? Because as you said earlier, they can both play the same role. And would you say that Shiva is anterior to Vishnu and Brahm? Would you say perhaps that the the trinity we find in Sanatana Dharma where you have Shiva, Vishnu, and Brahm is really an attempt to accommodate the um, perhaps earlier Shiva cult and integrate it into the more mainstream religious system? Um, I will answer Janice's question first and then and then go into Dom's because they're, they're linked in a way. So first of all, I'm, I'm obviously not a historian. I'm not an archaeologist. I can only speak to the things I've read on Janice's question, but it's a good question. And I, there is a lot of literature on that. There's a lot of speculation on that point. And it's brought up a lot by certain Western esoteric thinkers who adopt or were adopted into Tantra and yoga in India in some respect. For example, Elaine Daniello very much was of the mind that the Shiva cult was a much earlier cult in India. Uh, but he was also going by the Aryan invasion hypothesis, which has come into serious question in recent decades, especially as more archaeological findings have come out. And I don't come down firmly one way or the other on that because I kind of feel like it's not my place to. That's for Indians and their scholars and academics to work out as, as evidence piles up in either direction. Genetics has played into that too. Are Aryans and Dravidians actually genetically distinct people that were integrated at some point? I don't know. Um, but I do think that a lot of what we call Tantra and yoga do seem to predate quote-unquote orthodox Vedic religion and the orthodox Hinduism that grew out of it. So Orthodox Hinduism appears to be a marriage in a lot of ways between Vedic and Tantric modes of practice and forms of theology and metaphysics and all these things. And it's a really amazing marriage, if indeed that is the case, because you don't see that perfection, you know, you don't see that clean of a, of a syncretism in a lot of the world. And part of it is probably just that Hindu history has fewer catastrophic breakages than you see in European history where you have these religious wars breaking out and things, uh, things like that. Not to say India didn't have its fair share of religious conflict because boy did it. Uh, but there were much cleaner integrations over time. And so modern Hinduism is very much a case of one of these really, really amazing syncretic integrations of multiple perspectives. 
and multiple approaches and, and forms of practice. I do think that tantric practices, which probably tied into Shaktism in the earliest forms, um, probably are the earliest iterations of religious, spiritual, mystical, and magical practice in India. Because you see really, really old strata of them in rural tribal practices to this day in India that in some ways resemble modern Hinduism, but in other ways are their own creatures entirely. So I, I, I do think that the evidence points in that direction. Now, whether or not the Aryan invasion thing is true, I, I can't say. So exactly how that integration took place or when it occurred, I'm simply not expert enough to say, but it's a fascinating question. Um, but that does kind of bring me into Dom's question, what draws me to Shiva? And in large part, it is this very ancient, venerable element to Shaivism and Shaktism that draws me in that direction. It feels like the perennial philosophy that a lot of modern Western thinkers talk about, but in a much more concrete, much less abstract way than these modern Western philosophers and metaphysicians and esotericists seem to mean. Um, sort of like Shaivism and Shaktism look to me like the holy grail of what a lot of perennialists are looking for. And I don't mean by that that every single other religious and spiritual tradition in the world comes directly out of them, but it does look a hell of a lot like a lot of traditions in Europe and Asia and the Middle East draw at least some of their origins from a lot of very early Indian thought and practice. And so you get a lot of syncretism all over the sort of mega continent of Europe, Asia, and the Middle East, and probably to some extent into Africa as well because of, you know, all of the intellectual and material interchanges that happened between the Middle East and Africa and Europe over time. So, you know, Alain Danielou, to go back to him, and I'm probably butchering the pronunciation, I don't know French, but uh, one of his big things was that the cult of Dionysus, you know, he thought that the cult of Dionysus was probably Shaivism in the Hellenic world. And I think that might be taking the hypothesis a little bit too far to say that it's just straight up a transplantation but I do think that it's probably pretty reasonable to say that they were drawing from very similar early sources. So that's a big part of why Shaivism is so attractive to me. It seems like one of these very few living examples of an incredibly old stratum of human spiritual life 
that's just still around somehow that that has stuck around and made a home in every subsequent religious and cultural form that has come since. And that's just amazing. And it gives us this incredible wealth of practice, this incredible wealth of metaphysical depth that is hard to find in, uh, in systems that are observably much younger. And that's not to say that those younger religious and spiritual systems are not valuable because of it. But when we're talking about what draws me in, that's a big part of it. I would agree. That is extremely attractive and fascinating. When looking at Shiva himself, mm-hmm. is there a drastic difference between Vishnu and the paradigm there? Yeah. The big one goes back to what we were talking about earlier with Shiva being viewed as kind of dirty. He's ritually impure from the perspective of a strict Orthodox Vedic ritualist. Vishnu, precisely the opposite. He is spotless, Vedically speaking. And this in no way is a superior, inferior thing, but it does mean that they might look attractive in different ways to different people. Shiva is in some in some significant ways and in some circles still looked upon with fear. I have a friend here in Pittsburgh who's an Indian immigrant himself, came to Pittsburgh to go to university got a job here and stuck around. And he's a, he's a Hindu. He's a practicing Hindu, has his little shrine at home where he offers water and fruit and candy and incense every day. And he is actively afraid of Shiva. He has a Shiva lingam on his shrine, but to him, he's making offerings to Shiva so that Shiva won't hurt him. It's atro, you know, apotropaic rather than devotional for him. And that's certainly not what I would call like a majority perspective, but it's representative enough that you will find plenty of Hindus who, who approach Shiva in that way. You will not find a single Hindu, I don't think, who would approach Vishnu that way uh, unless they personally had suffered some trauma or other that caused it. You know, there, there are not really religious circles that I'm aware of that think of Vishnu as someone to be afraid of. So that's a, a significant difference. Does that come from then the, the, uh, the destroyer aspect of that trinity you were speaking about earlier? It can. It also yeah. comes from the fact that Shiva in his more yogic aspects is shown palling around with quote-unquote lower spirits. He's shown palling around with the hungry dead, uh, with vampires, with ghosts and ghouls, with the types of demons that animate corpses that haven't been, you know, that haven't been uh, buried or burned properly, you know. So Shiva has this fearful aspect, but from a yogi's perspective, these spirits come to Shiva for the same reason that we do because Shiva accepts them, 
because Shiva says, hey, if you want to practice a spiritual path, you don't have to be this perfect representative of absolute ritual purity. You can come to me and start practicing right away and you will become pure through your proximity to me. Shiva is friendly with yogis in a way that, and, and I mean that very literally, you know, obviously I don't have Shiva sitting on my couch drinking a beer with me in the evening, but he is there. He's very present and responsive in a way that a lot of more quote unquote exalted deities aren't while being this transcendent absolute Godhead. You know, he, he covers both of those extremes in a way that makes him extremely accessible when you approach with sincerity. It seems like there's a union between the uh, imminent and the transcendent in Shiva. I would say there is with, with Vishnu as well, but it's, it's of a different sort. So astrologically, we talk about Vishnu presiding over Jupiter uh, because, or I'm sorry, over Mercury. I misspoke. He presides over Mercury because Mercury is the planet of communication and manifestation. Mercury is the planet of getting things done. And so Mercury is also the planet through which we recognize God. We recognize the absolute. You know, we recognize, uh, you know, Mahavairochana in all manifest forms. So Vishnu is the transcendent in the imminent, whereas Shiva does not preside over any of the planets, per se, and is sort of the, 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 you know, the imminent and the transcendent. You've got that Shiva-Shakti dichotomy that threads the needle of imminent and transcendent, whereas Vishnu is sort of spread out between them. You know, one thing that we had discussed with um, Nicholas Shrek, who's um, very much, you know, devoted to Kali, even though he is um, also a tantric Buddhist, is there's this thing in tantrism, which I think might be hard for Western esotericists to grasp sometimes, which is like, the utter simplicity of Tantra at times and, you know, like how, how there is this pure and true, it's not a mental trick, this pure imminence in the most simple folk religious or folk magical act of reverence or devotion or mantra. It's can be the simplest thing yet if done with purity of heart, it's also the supreme action. And I think, I mean, and I, you know, I can say as a Western esotericist, I, I understand this, but only after having to work on understanding the simplicity, work on actually getting away from trying to understand the simplicity and just 
being in that simplicity, being in that moment, understanding that that essence of Tantra in that pure simplicity is actually a, in a way like a secret that's right out there in the open. Absolutely. This goes back to what we were talking about earlier when I was flailing around trying to define Tantra itself. Part of it is that very simplicity. And again, a lot of people emphasize the sex thing, but the only reason sex is there in the first place is because if we are saying that the divine is accessible everywhere at all times and in all things, that necessarily is going to include the sex act. It also includes eating and drinking. It includes every single facet of lived experience. If, you know, this is a thing you find a lot in Zen literature, but it's every bit as applicable here, how if you are really, really mindful, if you're really aware when you're eating a piece of fresh ripe fruit, you will have the transcendent experience in that imminent first bite of the season's first ripe plum, you know? And I would say that that's a very tantric mindset to have about one's spiritual practice that over time we are able to gradually relinquish the formalism of practice we might still fall back on it here and there from time to time to ground us in it, but we can expand our practice into um, less and less formal areas of life until it encompasses everything, until it encompasses taking a shower in the morning, you know, making dinner for your family in the evening. You know, all of these things get wrapped up in it. They become part of that self-same experience. That's like the suchness idea, right? Like it's this point where boundaries dissolve. It's this point where let's stop worrying about higher and lower. Let's stop worrying about, you know, immaterial and material, you know, because the supreme being is also present everywhere including in us including in everything let's stop throwing let's stop you know messing around with these concepts of clean and unclean and you know it's like these are all in a way mental constructs that act as obstacles to our direct perception of the very real and vivid presence of the divine in this moment absolutely and Part, that's part of why we use ritual fires, right? It's part of why, you know, uh, esoteric Buddhism uses ritual fires, part of why Nathas use ritual fires. Obviously, every one of these traditions will have their own uh, particularized interpretations, their own particularized applications, but part of it is the transforming nature of fire that reduces everything down to the same substance. It's why we Nathas apply ash from our fires to our bodies. We collect it after the fire. uh, We keep it in a special container and we apply it to our bodies throughout the day when we sit to meditate, when we do puja. Um, We use it in our magical practices, um, you know, all of these things. That ash from these ritual fires we call the bindu of the work the point 
of the work. Bindu means point mathematically, but it also means seed biologically. It is the point of the work because the ash is everything reduced down to the same substance. Uh, and ultimately that's what the yogi is attempting to do with all of experience to find what is common in all experience to find that, you know, that, that void essence, that pregnant nothing, or that, you know, that, that empty everything. That's very beautifully put. You have a real way with rendering these things in accessible terms. Um, you know, you make it so easy to understand and, this stuff can be challenging if you're coming at it from an outsider's view, but the way you put it makes it just very straightforward and direct and easy. And I really appreciate your approach. I wanted to, you just said something that really sparked me. I'm going to, you know, throw a little metaphor out there, but I have read that Agni, Agni Dev, Sri Agni Dev, you know, the fire, the deity of the fire is actually intimately connected or associated with Shiva. Mm -hmm. And what you just described kind of helps me understand how that is. Agni is sometimes even equated with Shiva. Um, sometimes he's equated with Kartikeya. Uh, I, I've, I've seen different interpretations along those lines. And as with all of this stuff, I'm not willing to put an absolute on it in either direction, but I think at least associating them very strongly is useful. Cool. Well, I think we should start wrapping it up, although I feel like we could go on uh, much longer. You've given us a lot of food for thought. I think you've informed a lot of people in, in areas that maybe they haven't been familiar, I'm just assuming. Um, you've definitely informed me on a lot of a lot of interesting points. So where could people find what you're doing? Where could they kind of follow up on this information if they're interested in following this path? And uh, what's going on with this book you're writing? Put me on the spot on that one. So if people want to hit me up, see what I am doing, follow up on some of my writing and my random thoughts along these lines, my website is inpeaceprofound.com. And uh, I have my blog there. And that's also where you can get in touch with me. I also practice astrology. Uh, from a sort of tantric stroke Vedic perspective. So if you're interested in that, you can hit me up there for that sort of thing. As I have news on my book, that's also where I'll be putting it. The book is, so we, we briefly mentioned earlier my pamphlet from Hadean Tantric Conjure, which is more of a magical kind of tantric sorcery type of resource. Whereas the book I'm working on right now is much more yogic in nature, much more overtly focused on spiritual practice, on meditation and all of the various tools and tricks that support meditation. So yeah, I'm working hard on that. And 
I will keep people abreast of the progress as it is made on my blog. So Vignana, I just want to say thank you again um, for all this great information and also for being such a, a great supporter of our show from the very beginning. Um, you were giving us encouragement and sharing our stuff. So we very much appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really glad to have the chance to be on here. And I like what you guys do. I like the variety of perspectives and, and traditions that get represented here. All right, cool. Uh, I just want to thank Vignana Nath for coming on, representing um, something very special. In the West, there's not a lot of legitimate uh, Shaiva resources, representatives, you know, there's not a lot of people in this tradition and the ones that are in, you know, I noticed they keep it kind of quiet, keep, keep it kind of down low. Like it, it, it kind of actually reminds me of people in some of the legitimate magical orders, um, yeah. in the Western esoteric tradition. It's interesting because there's a lot of magical orders out there that people, most people know nothing about that are totally quiet. Yeah. Because they're actually working on doing magic, doing alchemy, doing work. And it seems like that's where you guys are. You guys are kind of focused on the same. You yeah. guys are more focused on your practice. You guys are more focused on the life. Consider, yeah, the difference between what you, when talking to Rocky, called like a, a, a party voodoo house versus like a Kimbanda house, you know. Um, we We do, in a lot of ways keep to ourselves. We, we keep pretty quiet. Uh, a lot of us have some sort of public face of one form or another, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's very much that way. My guru warned me early on working with him, uh, to avoid publicly cheerleading too many, too many people in groups and so on just because you get caught up doing that rather than doing what you're actually there to do. Yeah, I, I, I noticed that, and that's a good practice. Um, you know, the lived, the lived magical life is not the internet magical life, people. Um, it's not about superstars or even duper stars. It's not about being cool on podcasts, even though our podcast may be very cool. <laughs> uh, it's not about... <laughs> Extra special thanks for having me then because I am literally surrounded by tabletop role playing games right now. I am the nerdiest person. <laughs> I am I am the least cool person around. So I'm, I'm I glad, totally disagree. Glad I to totally disagree. I know this guy in person. He's actually extremely cool, sweet natured, good, you know, just smart, fun. He's fun to hang with in person. You know, also, he's a very good magician. He does work for hire. I don't know if that was mentioned, but, you know, he is a root worker, conjure man, and he does very effective work. He's a very good diviner. So if any of you need magical work, divination work done, um, you, I, and I can attest to knowing him for many years now, his integrity level is totally high. He's a good person. He's an honest person. He has a lot of integrity and has a good heart and would never lie, cheat, steal, anything like you see a lot with these interweb magicians. Um, you're dealing with somebody who has been in the game before the internet was like a whole bastion of uh, blog magi. Oh. So I strongly recommend going to him if you need something. Same for both of you. I appreciate that both of you very much, like even in the 
hoary world of social media uh, are always keeping it real and whatever the interactions are, are trying to like keep things at a, at a pretty high level. And we have to remember that people are genuine human beings in meat space too. I mean, yeah. like when you were talking about Hori, I immediately thought of Dominic. <laughs> I was waiting for something, man. I was waiting for it. He owed, he owed me that one. Yeah. It just wouldn't have been the magician and the fool without it. <laughs> but thanks so much for coming on. You know, we love talking to you. Definitely want to have you on uh, again and definitely want to have you on our lecture series. Yeah, appreciate you having me. I'd be more than happy to come back. Cool. Thank you, sir. Okay, that was Vinyana Nath representing the uh, intricate topic of tantric Shaivism for the show. We were grateful to have him on. It was interesting. He's an interesting person practitioner, scholar, constantly educating himself, but also just he gets down low in the trenches and, you know, does the dirty work, you know, for his, for his work. You know, he, he just, he doesn't just, he doesn't just study it and intellectually talk about it while pinching his nose in an armchair. He's actually out there in the trenches doing the work, you know, um, and that's to me the most significant part is you have somebody who really embodies the ideal here where whereas um you know i think sometimes there are imbalances in other situations where sometimes people practice a lot and there is a lot of learning to be done in just practicing but when you can incorporate a measure of scholarly study into your practice it can greatly enhance it and so uh, i do think that the balance is the ideal, and I think that he embodies that balance uh, in, in a not dissimilar way to Rocky Geis, who was our prior episode. I think we've done a nice job spotlighting individual practitioners in the recent couple of episodes, and I'm excited to um, move on with that theme while at the same time we return to interviewing scholars who have a passion for the subject matter. With that said, uh, Dominic, you have anything to add? Just that I did have fun listening to uh, Vignana's wisdom. I thought uh, he made some really interesting points and really went deep. And I think we could have gone even deeper. So it is going to be nice to hear what he comes up with for the lecture series. I am looking forward to this book that he's writing. It's a ways out, I think. But for listeners who are interested in what he was talking about, I would recommend the pamphlet that he did through Hadian Press, um, it's really short, but it gives you a taste of, of where he's coming from. It's a unique angle. It's not something you see in this esoteric landscape right now. It's it's fresh. And he's coming from a place of, like you were saying, real practice and real wisdom. He's not just uh, theorizing. So very cool guy. Great interview. Looking forward to talking to him in the future. Um, looking forward to his book. And we will keep you guys updated when we hear more about this book that he's writing. But for now, speaking of books, let's move into our book review segment and take it away. I want to highlight a book. Uh, I think that many people who are listening may actually be aware of it if they're interested in Tantra. Uh, But if they are not, 
it is it is something that will really open your eyes. Uh, it's there's actually I believe three in the series, but the first one in my opinion is the best, and it's called um, Agora, and it's uh, the subtitle is that the left hand of God. They're I believe they're by Robert Svoboda. They're they're uh, three books that go in depth into tantric practice. Um, there's somewhat anecdotal, and I think perhaps with an element of autobiographical aspects to it, but. They can also be very extreme in their depictions and descriptions. So um, if you have a sensitive stomach, I don't necessarily recommend reading these books, at least not without preparing yourself first. But um, they're about the Agori, they're about Agori uh, tantrists, who these are the people who live in the graveyards, charnel grounds, eat feces, um, you know, meditate sitting on dead bodies, things like that. And it goes into a more extreme, you know, uh, form of Shaivism. But uh, these books are really eye-opening and interesting, and I strongly recommend them. Great, thank you. Yeah, that sounds sounds interesting. I think people may be familiar with that sort of practice at a very surface level, so it might be interesting to take a, a deeper dive into that. And having said that, I think it's time to wrap up. We're going to keep it short since the episode was kind of long. Um, you can find us on Facebook, YouTube, uh, iTunes, and all of the other places that you find people. So thank you for listening. Any final words? Just that uh, we appreciate our listeners a great deal, and we appreciate our guests a great deal as well. And we hope to continue providing you with quality content that can hopefully help you to see that there are many options available to you on the esoteric path. It's not all Solomonic magic, folks. <laughs> okay, on that note, we will see you in the next episode. Thank you for listening. <laughs>